So welcome everyone to another episode of Ortho Evidence. My name is Mo Bandari, Editor-in-Chief. And uh, from time to time we get, you know, really interesting uh, individuals who bring data to life. Um, Gareth Tingling is just that individual. Let me preface this by also saying that Gareth was a, a critical member of the Ortho Evidence team not that long ago um, and helped us really drive data. Gareth, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. We were both data-driven. I think that's what really brought us together. Absolutely. But now I am actually interested, interested in how you are using data to help others. And maybe you could speak a little bit about it. Really what I start to look at is uh, what is going on across thousands of companies. Um, and the when I look at data, I'm looking at it in a historical perspective in terms of things like everything from valuation by industry to uh, what happens cyclically with what's going on in the economy. Right. My belief is, is that we tend to form attachment to ideas when we only have a few of them. Yeah. When you have a lot of ideas, you can't have a favorite child. Yeah. And, and so everything I look at is always through the lens of right now, this appears to be the best option of what's available within this context. But I'm constantly looking for narratives that will help me to possibly recognize a weakness in an investment thesis, right? The Got reality it. for any of it, and, and your, yeah. your, your listeners will know this, um, a, a set of facts can be explained by a number of narratives. Yes. The tricky part is, what narrative do you use when a certain negative fact has not yet presented? Can you come up with a narrative that can allow for that negative fact that comes later and keep that in your head? So right. that when that thing shows up, you can say, oh, I thought the narrative was X. It's actually Y, right? I'm a big fan of House, right? That TV show, yes. which is, you might think it's the craziest <laughs> no, thing ever. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I love the the discovery mechanism through that. And, and it, when I realized that the whole thing was based upon Sherlock Holmes, House Holmes, Wilson Watson, yes. even his address, 2221B, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I thought to myself, holy smokes, they've literally turned you know, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes into a, into a uh, medical detective. Right, right, right. And I, I've watched that. So a big part of that is kind of how I look at what I do. Okay. Um, and, I mean, we can talk a little bit around the, the cognitive errors that people make and ways to combat them. And that's part of the value that I bring to my clients is oh. helping them to get past them. Well, absolutely. So since you brought the issue of cognitive errors, because th that's a huge part of how we even interpret evidence, how we interpret, you know, the best opportunities for our patients. What are some of the cognitive biases that people... People, um, you know, unfortunately, put themselves into as they think about their own personal investments. Yeah. So a big one that I see is, and it's used jokingly now, but this concept of fear of missing out. Oh. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. um, the belief that uh, something has happened. I wasn't on that boat. Yes. Here's another one, and yes. that manifests itself in numerous ways. And I can I can point to several examples. Uh, the dot com era. Sure. Okay. Cannabis. Sure. Uh, how that played out with, you know, you get cannabis A, cannabis B, then you get a whole bunch of derivative plays for people that miss those ones. Right. And we've seen it in crypto as well, quite frankly, right? right. And, and I don't want to, it's easy to say to somebody like me, okay, boomer, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I know you're not going to like crypto, but uh, there, there's more to it than just having a fundamental dislike of something that has no intrinsic value. It really comes down to the idea that... Um, what can this asset actually do for me? And and I've walked through this many, many times with, with some of my clients. Some of my clients love it, by the way. And right. I've said to them, look, here's the deal. You give me your slow money. You yes. can go to the casino with your crypto, pat yourself on the back if yes. it wins, and, and, and curse if it loses. Yes. But I said, I can't add any value here, and I don't want to take your money. Yes. Right? Which 
you know, ultimately that's had a profound effect on them to think, well, why, why wouldn't you want to take this? Right. Right. So, so cognitive errors show up in a number of different ways. And so fear of missing out is definitely one of them. Yes. Another one is this idea that uh, because something had worked before, yeah. that it's going to work again. Sure. And a big part of what I do is constantly providing a fresh perspective on the way the world is versus how it was. And, and what that does is it, it forces a way of thinking, right? right? One of the tests we used to do here when I worked with you, right. with, with the team, the data team, yeah. we would do this. Here's a set of facts. Yep. Okay. Let's play a game. The game yep. was sketch a narrative around it. Yeah. So, you know, one of the people would say, hey, here's a really interesting narrative. And I would say a couple of rules. You can't just take his narrative and add aliens to it to yes. create your own narrative. You get, yep. you get, so we'd come up with three or four different narratives to explain a set of facts as more facts came. We would, we would see that. And, and it, the whole idea was keep your mind open, right? Yeah. Keep your mind open to the possibility that you are reading this completely incorrectly. It creates a lot of uh, um, dissonance, even in somebody like me, a former analyst, because you have to keep holding up the possibility that everything I believe that I've seen is actually, it's missing. I'm seeing an iceberg. There's a piece that's missing that is going to show itself. And so I say to clients all the time, at, right now, this looks like the best risk-adjusted opportunity I can find because of this, 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 and this. But here are things that could go wrong. So much of this, isn't it? It's so fascinating how much this has parallels to what we do every day at Orso Eleven. <laughs> so I can totally see how you know how you've you've been continually thinking about it because you know remember at Ortho Evidence and we continue to do this. We're looking to predict. You know, can you predict or look for associations? Yeah. But are these associations spurious yeah. or are they real? And I would imagine there's nothing more. Um, personal than, you know, what is in my bank account, right? And how do I ensure that I can be safe with that? The same way we think about how do we ensure we have the same, you know, the optimal treatments for our yeah. patients. And actually, where is our field moving, right? And based on where your field's moving is where you might consider investing in, let's say, in, you know, in, in the health industry. Tell me a little bit about predictive analytics and how important they are, you know, for you. Yeah. So my, my belief is, okay, the future is always unknown. And, and, and it's, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a, like a, a tautological statement, right? That, right. That, that you know you can't know what the future is. What you can do is, though, you go back to what I said at the outset. Human beings are short-lived creatures, yes. and we are creatures of habit. Sure. Okay. So what you can do is, you know, they say uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So very often, what I will do is, uh, I use some concepts like mean reversion. And I use descriptive statistics in, in a lot of the work that I do. Sure. Also, I'll, I'll give you an example. Sure. Um, I will find sometimes um, industries, yes. okay, where or, or companies where they are trading at a valuation, a forward valuation. So this is what so analysts are looking out into the future, yeah, sure. And there's 50 analysts that are covering it, okay? okay. So what I do is I look at that and I say, okay, this thing is trading right now at a valuation where 99.999 percent of the time in the last 10 years it traded at a higher valuation, okay. Okay. Yeah. So this thing from from a from a from a valuation perspective, it's it's statistically almost always traded higher. Right. Then the next thing I do is I look at this and say, okay, what's going on within the overall industry? How many arrows are favorable for conditions to persist over the you know near term and longer right. term for this thing to be able to get back there? And one of the things I look at is it's not just about where is this thing traded on a valuation basis, not a price, but valuation. Yes. It's also things like if this thing was to get back to its median valuation, 
What does that mean? Versus right. what if it doesn't even need to get back to its median? What if it's just 25th percentile? Right. 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 So, for example, right now I've been out buying companies that are trading at, you know, like a, a price to earnings multiple of under 10, okay. which is almost unheard of in a technology company, for example. Right, 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 right. But if it was to get to its 25th percentile, it would be a 17 times multiple. You don't have to be a genius to realize that's almost a double in the value of the thing, and that's without it even getting to its median value. Got it. So, so sorry. Oh, go ahead. So let me ask you this. I yeah. mean, and I, I can't be the only one thinking this. So I'm hoping there's someone else listening and who's thinking the same thing I is. How how does tech, you know, get valued at many many multiples over its you know, you know, out over its income, you know, over what right. it gets, you know, compared to some other places, which are often three times yeah. or four. Like, wh- how is that happening in tech? Yeah, and why? So, per- yeah. Great question. Yeah. And and people make a mistake of thinking it's because it's tech. It's not. Okay. It's 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 looking at what the underlying is, and okay. and I'll give you a very specific example. Sure. With technology companies, okay, very right. often, the concept is that you have a fixed cost. Right. Okay. The fixed cost is people coming in, and and I call tech companies very often income statement companies rather than balance sheet companies. Why? They don't have a lot of physical assets. They've got people coming in. Those people they have to pay salaries to. Correct. That's the asset. Yeah. So, but here's the really interesting thing. If you're paying those salaries to those people, and they are producing something, and then you can sell one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, or ten thousand, and no matter how many you sell, the marginal cost of that additional sale drops towards zero. Yes then what happens is is that once you get past a certain level of revenue, the rate of increase in your profit margins accelerates. I see. Okay. So Got what it. happens is the reason that these companies trade at high multiples is the expectation that if revenue goes up, for example, fifteen percent, yes, that the profit can go from, you know, ten cents to a buck fifty. I see. Okay. And so you know, the converse that you haven't asked me about is why do these things sometimes drop 30%? Yes. And they drop 30% when a quarter comes out and it's, oh, the trajectory we expected that was going to drive this ridiculous earnings amount. Yes. It looks like that might not be the case. And so the multiplier that yes. gets applied crushes it. Got it. Right? It's, Got it. you know, uh, valuation multiples in tech companies like MSG. Right? Yes. On the upside, it's <laughs> great. great. But, you know. Well, let me ask you this. Who decides this? Like, you know, like at the core of it, you know, right. for many of our listeners, again, and myself included, yeah, yeah. who decides what the multiple is? Who decides suddenly that something is up or down? Is it a, is it a group think thing or is it, it individuals? What is it? Yeah. So it, it, it's not, um, it is not in any way a cabal of people making okay, yes, decisions. Yes. These are individual actors. What I'll say to you is this, sure. is that a lot of people lose sight of this. A multiple, like a PE multiple or, or these things that you've heard yes, of, yes. are essentially an algebraic way to recast discounted cash flows. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So, I, so for example, I do this when I'm looking at companies. Yes. I actually run discounted cash flows on 2,000 companies. Okay. Okay? Right. And I can then turn those discounted cash flows into a PE multiple. So what's happening is this. You've got people like me that are actually looking out into the future and discounting the future back to the present and converting that into a, okay, so if the value of the company is X and the total market capitalization of the company is this, okay, so the value is, I make up a number here, you know, the value is 10 million based upon the discounted cash flow, but it's only trading on a total value right now of five. Uh, It's undervalued. Got it. But you have other people 
who basically then turn around and say, well, we're just going to use a, a, a PE and they pluck it out of the air. Okay. So you've got people that are legitimately taking discounted cash flow and bringing it to this PE. You've got other people that just work off of the PE and they use the PE because you, it's very difficult to compare discounted cash flows of company A to company B to company C. Got Every it. single company has got its own very specific trajectory of its future, but a multiple you can compare really, yeah. really, really easily. Right. Right? Right. I'm sure in medicine, you guys have got... Um, a number of markers that are things that you can compare uh, among people. All the time. Right. right. All the time. But if you were to break it down into all of the specific things like, you know, um, whether it's a certain amount of proteins that, that, that might be present, yeah. there's a lot of variability in that at the human level. Absolutely. But there are rules that you guys end up with. And that's kind of the thing that ends exactly. up, we end up bubbling up these right. kinds of rules that come right. out of this to right. the point where people go, oh, well, tech companies trade at these multiples. Right. And, but, I, think, and, yeah. and I think to the point you're saying is that, you know, that there is variability. And so we set in medicine, as you know, you, were, you, know, you know this very well, confidence intervals. We think there's a 95% chance that the truth lies between here and here. The same way someone says, you know, the tech industry is typically running at multiples of X to X. Well, it's it's in it's in those markers. What makes you at the top end and the bottom end? Well, that depends on the, you know, um, I guess the validity of the information that's going in and the quality of the information. Absolutely. So let me ask you this yeah. about that. Like, so how does someone measure? Like, you know, when we're, like, you know, it's, it's clear at least to some degree. Mm. Some might say it's still fuzzy, but it's clear that, you know, we have a hierarchy of information inputs. And we say, you know, if we have information from a large clinical trial, yeah. it helps us make decisions about that value of that data, maybe more than a value of, like, let's say, a case series. Right. How, does, how do you determine the quality of the information? Where do you get the information to make these judgments? So thank you. And, and so... Um, you 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 use a lot of very technical mathematical language. When I talk to people most of the time, I just talk about n. Yeah, yeah, right, okay? right, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, yeah, you know, right. you, the sophistication that you're dealing with is is not always what I'm. You know, I've got clients that are running businesses, running restaurants, sure. whatever. So, sure. and it's no disrespect to them, but you know, getting to to something that's meaningful to them. Oh, so, it's for a, example, it's the same issue we have too, right? Like, remember, there's a language we have in in you know in research. Yeah. That we're trying to you know translate in a way that is meaningful to people who may not necessarily be you know spending their time getting PhDs and things like that. Exactly. So yeah. So I wonder if you could like, maybe we'll finish sure. with this key concept around yeah. uh, that we're talking about, and we'll finish off with that. Sure. So pretty simply, um, I worked as an analyst for many years covering yes. small cap companies. Right. right. Okay. So what you find is this, and um, when you have one or two or three analysts covering a company, yes, there's a ton of bias that's inherent in there. Sure. By the time you get to 9, 10, 11, 12 analysts covering a company, you've actually got enough variability of opinion that you can start to have a shape of potential futures got that it. is not just driven by uh, a simple bias of getting a banking deal right. done or something right, like right, that. Right, right. So what I do, and this is me using heuristics from my years as being an analyst, right. I, I apply these by industry. I also look at the industry level. So I'm looking at hundreds and hundreds of companies at various levels within a particular industries for anomalies. My belief is, is that the larger the N, the more confidence I have within the... Okay, so... You got it. Right? Higher sample size, more precision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, Higher sample size, more okay. precision. Totally makes sense. I yeah. think most of us would understand that. Yeah. So, the, you know, the thing with it is, Mo, is that yeah. the, the, a lot of the things that I... And it's a funny thing. I, I worked before as an analyst. Yeah. I came in here, worked with you. Yeah. And then I left thinking, up your game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, this is great for me. It's a kind of coming home to yeah. have this conversation, but... Honestly, I, I, I thank you very much for that because oh, it was there always, but 
it, it's actually made a significant kind of leap for me into what I'm doing now. In the same way, I think you, I mean, the reason that it was such a great fit for us here and the time that you gave us was very important because you're data driven, right? And at the end of the day, I always believe that if we, you know, you can't all, you know, you have, you have to, you, there is a gut instinct mindset, yeah. but if we only work with our gut, uh, we're going to make mistakes. So we need to have yeah. triangulation with other forms of data. And I can't thank you enough, Gareth, for joining us today, sharing your insights. And I might even see if I can goad you into maybe doing some written work with us <laughs> on an insight, because I think this would be uh, an important summarizing some of these concepts for our viewers on an insight would be great. And we look forward to that opportunity. Happy to do it. All right. Thank, thank you. you so much. Take care.